Let's pray together. Father, we are not a people who have it all together. Some of us are here this morning feeling that we are hanging on by a very thin thread. The worries and the cares of this world are choking at the word. And so, Father, what we need from you so desperately is to help us that through the power of your spirit you would awaken in us courage and resolve to journey on after our Savior Jesus and to know that what lies before us is so much greater than anything that lies behind us. So we ask for your help to see Jesus as he is, to love him as he ought to be loved. Father, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we would ask you to do it again in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. There's a poignant scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is book five in the Chronicles of, of Narnia. And if you know the story, you know that King Caspian is with this group of rugged sailors who have set sail aboard the ship, the Dawn Treader, and they're going from Narnia to find Aslan's, Aslan's country. Aslan, you remember from the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, is the great Lion King of Narnia who died on the stone table to defeat the White Witch and to set the captives free. But to make it to Aslan's country, they would have to make a perilous journey all the way to the end of the world. Along with Caspian and his crew, there was a mouse aboard the ship named Reepicheep. And Reepicheep was the leader of the talking mice of Narnia. He was the only native Narnian on board the ship. He was brave and he was fiercely loyal to Aslan. Reepicheep's lifelong dream was to see Aslan's country. And so the peril of this journey was no matter to Reepicheep. He wanted to go to Aslan's country and he would hazard any danger to have it. But along the way, the voyagers on the Dawn Treader, they meet many obstacles. They landed on island after island after island, encountering new dangers and snares to keep them from their journey. But they journeyed on until they come to Ramandu's island. And there on Ramandu's island, among other things, they find this table, which has a kind of enchantment about it, because you have all the comforts of being on land, but this table every day is, is magically uh, replenished with food. So you've got hungry sailors away from home, but every day there's this food on this table, on this, this island. And they're assured if they stay on the island, that table would be, would be replenished for them every day. 
And so the weary travelers at this point have a choice before them. They can continue on this journey and all the perils that are certainly in front of them to go to, to the end of the world, to Aslan's country, or they could stay at the island and enjoy the bounty before them on the island. And one of the sailors named Rhinelf reasons with the travelers, and he says this. He says, there's some here that are looking very hard at that table and thinking about the king's feasts. Some of you who are talking very loud about adventures on the day that we sailed from Care Paravel and swearing they wouldn't come home till we'd found the end of the world. I think chaps who set out like us will look silly if we come home and say we got to the beginning of the world's end and hadn't the heart to go further. And so as these men's hearts begin to fail and to long for the comfort of dry land at a full table every day, Lucy Pevensey turns to Reepicheep, the little mouse. She turns to Reepicheep and she asks if he has anything to say about what they should do. And this is my favorite part. Reepicheep says this. He says, my own plans are made. While I still can, I sail east in the dawn treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, which is a little boat. And when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. In other words, Reepicheep says, I would rather die with my nose pointed to Aslan's land than to stay on this island safe and with my belly full. Because I'd rather have the king than to have this food. He's everything. And when the men see the courage and resolve of the mouse, of Reepicheep, they all begin to examine themselves and say, will this mouse outstrip us in courage and bravery? And all of the sailors get back on the, the dawn treader and they head for the end of the world, except for one, because of Reepicheep. It's amazing to think how far a little courage goes when hearts fail due to fear and to a desire for self-preservation. And it's amazing to see how the willing sacrifice of the one can open eyes and ears to the real treasure that's before them. And it's amazing to contemplate the simple truth that the journey toward a treasure is only fulfilled if it's completed. It's not the beginning of the treasure hunt that brings riches. It's only the completion of it. Jesus said it this way. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How many of us are there who are willing to go only part way, only to find ourselves falling short of the completion of the journey? How many of us are tempted to follow Christ, but then to forsake him when the going gets tough? When the marriage gets hard? 
when the ministry begins to take every bit of life out of you. When the world comes calling with all of its treasures and lays them before you, promising you a greater reward if you would just simply stop journeying towards Jesus. How many of us are willing to go only part way on the journey? Some of you are contemplating this right now and you're wondering if the journey to Aslan's country, which we know is Jesus' country, and you're wondering if it's really worth everything that you feel it's costing you. And so you're thinking, well, maybe it's time to get off this ship right now. 2 Timothy 4, verses 5 through 22 is for you, if that's you. Open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, verse 5 through 22. In my last message on this text, it was one of my famous three-point sermons where there was no time for the third point. So today is point three. And then some. And what's going on here in this text? Paul is writing to Timothy from a Roman prison. He knows that he is about to be killed and to become a martyr for the faith. It's only a matter of time. Paul knows it. So he writes to Timothy with this final exhortation, which we heard last time, to preach the word in season and out of season. Whether people like it or don't like it, Timothy, you be faithful to preach the word. And then he reveals to Timothy here in this passage, I've finished my course. Which means, Timothy, I'm finishing my course. I'm coming to the end. Therefore, you finish your course. I will die with my nose pointed to the lion of Judah's country. And now you, Timothy, you do the same. You finish well. That's the heart of Paul's exclamation in these final verses of 2 Timothy. And so Paul's exhortation here winds up being a message message about finishing well. What does it mean to finish well? Why are we called to do this? And so I want to observe three items in this text about finishing well. Each of these sections in these final verses, verse 5 Uh, beginning with verse 5, verse 9, and verse 13, all of them begin with with imperatives. Each of them pertain to finishing well. And so three things, here they are up front. Finishing well in perseverance, beginning at verse 5. Finishing well in fellowship, beginning at verse 9. And finishing well in the word, beginning at verse 13. Finishing well in perseverance, in fellowship, and in the word. The first thing is finishing well in perseverance. Everybody look at verse 5. This is actually the, the last verse of the final section, but this is what Paul says. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Notice what Paul is saying here to Timothy with these final four commands. Be sober-minded, which means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness, as it it were. You're supposed to be be free from excess passion, rashness, confusion. It means to be well-balanced and self-controlled. 
That's what it means to be sober-minded. It means that you're controlled by the Spirit, not by your your passions or any other thing. Paul says here, always be sober-minded, which literally means be sober-minded in all things. He's saying that faithfulness means having this kind of mindset in every situation in life, in private moments and in public moments, in times of peace and tranquility in your life and in times of testing and conflict in your life. He's saying that we're called to be calm, reasonable, and reassuring when all the other voices around us are given to panic and hyperbole. Now that's kind of hard, isn't it? But that's what it means to be self-controlled. Timothy here is set before the congregation as a model. That's what he has to model to them, self-control. But he also says to endure suffering, which recalls what Paul already told Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 3. Do you remember that? He said, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Same idea right here. Suffering is the expectation of every single disciple of Jesus especially those who are like Timothy, those who labor in preaching the word. It's a part of the job description for Paul, and it's a part of the job description for Timothy. They're both pastors. They both have to face this conflict, and it's a part of the job description for us. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is going to be suffering in your life for following Jesus. So Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to suffer hardship, endure suffering, which means persevere through the conflict. He says, do the work of an evangelist, which means that Timothy's supposed to preach the gospel to the unconverted. Just because he's in a more settled situation in Ephesus, he's got a church, He's got a congregation. He's preaching to them every week the word of God. He is still supposed to have an eye to the unconverted, those who do not yet believe in the Lord Jesus. He's saying, do the work of an evangelist. Press the boundaries of the kingdom outward by preaching the gospel to the lost. And then the last thing, he says, fulfill your ministry, which is just a summary of those previous three commands and all the other responsibilities of pastoral ministry. To fulfill in this context means to finish the work faithfully. That's what it means. It means to finish well. Why? Well, look what he says in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Did you see that? He gives a series of commands... Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, face all the conflicts, finish well. Why? Because of what has happened to me, Paul says. I am being poured out as a drink offering. Paul is offering himself as the explanatory grounds or as an example for why he commanded Timothy to do what he's commanded to do. He's saying, because of my example of perseverance and finishing well, you must persevere and finish well. So so Paul is becoming Timothy's repetit. He's telling him, this has been my resolve. This should be your resolve. And notice that he uses this phrase here. He says, I've been poured out as a drink offering. Now, the reason I had Nathan read that text in our scripture reading from, from Exodus 
is because it's, a, it's one of the texts where you see in the Old Testament an example of drink offerings. I do think that Paul is comparing himself to um, what you see in the Old Testament with drink offerings that were offered at the, the tabernacle and at the temple. Except here Paul is saying, it's my blood that's being spilled out as a drink offering. I'm being spilled out, meaning my life is being spilled out of me. And he says that, that's why he says the time of my departure has come. Paul knows that he's about to die. And so this is an exhortation to Timothy to, that takes on the gravity of the last will and testament of the apostle Paul. So, so Paul's saying this, Timothy, you preach the word, you fulfill your ministry because I'm done. My leg in this race is finished and I'm about to hand this baton over to you. You must finish what I have started. So you preach the word in the face of every conflict. And so he gives two images to describe this, the image of a fight and of a race. He says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. The good fight describes um, a kind of a competition or contest in which one has to meet opposition and overcome it. That's what he's talking about. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul calls it the good fight of faith which means it's the fight to trust in Jesus no matter what and the fight against sin. So Paul says that he has given every last fiber of his being to this struggle. I fought that good fight. But notice that he says he's fought the good fight. And it's important here to notice this because there are good fights and there are bad fights. Not every fight is a good fight. There are things that you can fight for that are the wrong things to fight for. Paul's vision, though, is defined by the good fight, which means it's the fight to trust in Jesus no matter what. The fight to follow him no matter what. And now he has done this and he is finishing his race. He didn't struggle for a little while and then falter and give up. He went from start to finish. I've kept the faith, meaning I've lived and preached this faith that I'm handing on to you, Timothy. I didn't give up when it got hard. I fought through until I could fight no more. And now I'm at the end. This is the definition of what we call perseverance. The perseverance of the saints. It is the true mark of the believer. It's not just the distinguishing mark of preachers. It's the distinguishing mark of every Christian Christianity is not about mere beginning. It's about finishing. It's not those who begin to follow Christ who inherit eternal life. It's not. It's those who finish, who persevere to the very end. This is what we call perseverance, and it's it's what's supposed to distinguish all of us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 says it this way. For we have become partakers of Christ. We've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. How do you know that you really know Christ? If you hold firm to the end. The difference between real Christianity and fake Christianity is finishing. If you know Christ, then you will finish. If you don't finish and you fall away, then you don't really know him. And the falling away proves it. And so verse 8 
is announcing the result of persevering to the end. Look at verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness, I think by, uh, by that phrase, Paul means the crown which is righteousness. And you know, a crown is like a laurel wreath that would be awarded to an athlete at the end of finishing a, 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 a race or some kind of a contest. It's the reward, and in this case, it consists of righteousness. It looks forward to the time when God will make us what he has already declared us to be in Christ, righteous. We will be, in reality, what we've declared to be, been declared to be forensically. But that crown is only for those who persevere, Paul says. But not just for preachers. Again, it's for all those who have loved his appearing. Meaning that every Christian, not just the Apostle Paul, every Christian is going to this reward. Every Christian who perseveres faithfully until the Lord comes. You know, the Lord Jesus once told a parable in Matthew 13 about the treasure hidden in a field. Do you remember that one? He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The, the kingdom of heaven, all right, pursuing Aslan's country as it were, it's like a treasure in two senses. It, one, it's valuable. In fact, it's so valuable that it would be worth losing everything that you have in order to have that treasure. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Losing all your stuff to get the treasure is not a net loss for you, but a net gain for you. That is why this guy in the parable joyfully forfeits all of his possessions to buy that field. He knows that what he is getting back is more than what he is giving up. And so it's worth it. So the kingdom of God is, is valuable. But the second thing is this. It's, it's a treasure that is hidden. That means that most people do not see how valuable this field is. Most people walk by this field and are completely unaware that it could make them rich beyond their wildest dreams. They wouldn't give a second thought, much less all of their possessions, to have the field. They can't see its worth, and that's why they won't sacrifice anything for it. And that right there is the difference between a disciple and someone who's not a disciple. It's the difference between the one who begins the journey and the one who finishes the journey. A true disciple is someone who sees the value of the kingdom. A false disciple is someone who doesn't see it. And that's why they fall away from the kingdom when following it begins to cost them. That's why they don't persevere. True disciples do persevere because they have eyes to see what no one else can see. And so sacrificing, even their own lives if need be, is something that they do with joy. Jesus says, from joy over it, the man sold all that he had to buy that field. Here's the point of all of this. And here's the point of, you've got to see Paul coming to the end of his life 
why he did this. Paul doesn't think he's losing something here. Paul has said elsewhere in Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? The only way that you will ever persevere through trial is if you are seeing that what you are giving up is nothing compared to what you are gaining at the end. Until you see that truth, you won't persevere when the going gets really tough, which means that the fight of our lives, for me and you, for perseverance, is a fight for joy. It's a fight to find our joy in the right place. It's a fight to believe what we have not yet seen with our eyes, but that there is a treasure in a far country that we are heading to, and they can do whatever they want to us here. Whatever they take from us, we have more in the end because of Jesus. That's the fight of our lives. Finishing well in perseverance means persevering in joy in the Lord Jesus and that you would rather have him than anything. So finishing well in perseverance. The second thing, finishing well in fellowship. Look what he says in verse 9. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Now, this isn't hard to understand. Paul wants Timothy to come to him. And the way he, he makes this request to Timothy is really kind of stunning. Here you have this, the big, bad apostle Paul, right? Uh, the one who'd been caught up into the third heaven. He'd had all these great and magnificent spiritual experiences. He had been the conduit of God's power, miraculous power, everywhere he had gone. Big, bad apostle Paul. And now he's rotting in a Roman prison. And the picture here is not of a man kind of floating up above the stone floor with a halo and, you know, gently holding up three feet. You know, those paintings from medieval paintings, you know, where they're standing like this. And they're just, uh, you know, they look so content. And th that's not what's going on here, okay? You got to think of a guy who is sitting on the prison, a, a cold, hard floor, probably lying stranded in a heap of his own filth, awaiting the executioner's notice. That's what you got to think about. And he's feeling just like you and I would feel in that situation, alone. And so what does he do? He calls for his dear brother and child in the faith, Timothy. He's calling for fellowship. Do you see that? Why is he all alone or almost alone? Well, look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. To Kikis, I have sent to Ephesus. Do you see what's going on here with Paul? He's hanging on by a thin thread here, it feels like. And he needs some help. He's calling in help. He has lost nearly everyone either to betrayal, in Demas' case. Demas left him because he just left the faith. He loved the world. He loved the world. He stays on the Isle of Ramandu. That's who Demas is. 
So Demas is gone. He's off the reservation at this point. These other guys apparently have left him because Paul has given them over to finish the ministry. He wants them out and deployed to finish the mission. So he's lost nearly everyone, either to betrayal or to the gospel ministry. Some have fallen away. Some have followed Christ right out of his life. And so only Luke is left with him. But clearly Paul desires fellowship with Timothy as well. And so he calls for him. And then astonishingly, he calls for Mark. You remember Paul divided from Barnabas back in the book of Acts over Mark. Didn't want Mark. Now he wants Mark back. You are going to find in your life that things are not going to go well. And it's not going to be unlike what you see here with Paul. You are going to get sick. You are going to lose a spouse. You are going to weep over a wayward child. You are going to grieve. You are going to be betrayed by friends and by loved ones, by people you thought you could count on. And your heart's really going to break. Real tears are going to stream down your face. And some of you in those moments are going to feel a temptation to pull away and to isolate yourself. That's not what Paul's modeling here, though. In his most desperate moment, he doesn't reach in. He reaches out for help. Trusting in the Lord Jesus doesn't mean isolation and a man becoming an island. He reaches in. He reaches out for fellowship. He doesn't draw away from the fellowship of the saints. He presses into the fellowship of the saints. I'm trying to draw your attention to this because we do well to follow Paul in this. Some of us in this room have personalities that when it comes to times of pain and heartache, we have a tendency to isolate ourselves and to descend into a kind of depression. And we don't call the saints in for help. We call the clouds in over our heads. And yet it's in those moments of need that we need each other the most. That's why Paul's calling for Timothy here. That's why we need not be afraid to call out for the Timothys in our own lives when the chips are down. This fellowship of believers is supposed to be that. That's what we're supposed to be for each other. When we feel like we're holding on like by a thin thread, we're supposed to be able to call on one another and say, help. Finishing well in perseverance, finishing well in fellowship, finally, finishing well in the word. Look at verse 13. When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. This is where you get a sense that what Paul's asking of Timothy is really practical at this moment. It's also revealing Paul's circumstances in prison. Being in prison in the first century in Rome, as I've mentioned before, wasn't anything like being in prison in the 21st century in America. There's no three squares a day. There's no air conditioning. There's no Aunt B showing up and, you know, bringing a hot meal, okay, to the folks in jail. That's, that's not what happens in a first century prison. If, if they gave you anything to eat, it was barely enough to survive. Poor ventilation created conditions of dangerously stale air, in the, in the summer, it could be suffocating heat and dehydration. 
where pallets were not available, guys often slept on the floor, perhaps using their outer cloak as a covering when it was cold at night. The cells were often devoid of any natural light. So a cell was often a place of great darkness. If you had chains on, which Paul often did, iron chains would chafe at your skin and corrode your skin over time. And you lay there in your filth and you wait for your disposition. One writer says this, It's no surprise that these awful conditions cause such profound distress of body and soul that prisoners, if they did not become sick and die, wished themselves dead or actively sought suicide. And so this is where Paul was when he's writing this letter. So what does he ask for? He asks for his cloak. Why? Because he's cold. Bring me my cloak. But even in this austere deprivation, look what else he asks for. Also bring the books and above all, the parchments. There's some question about what Paul is um, referring to here when he talks about the books and the parchments. But I think there's evidence that the books is referring to the Bible, the Old Testament. This is a term that's used to refer to the Old Testament and other verses uh, of the New Testament. Uh, one commentator says this, if there's one group of materials that he's asking for, then copies of Scripture and possibly Christian writings are most likely, which means the books and the parchments may very well be the books of the Old Testament and the things that he's writing, his own notes. So it's very possible that Paul was calling for the Bible, which means that in his most desperate hour, Paul is calling for the Word of God. Paul is concerned about God's Word until the very last moment, which is why Paul warns against someone who's standing against that Word. Look at verse 14. He tells Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. I think this Alexander is probably the same one from 1 Timothy in chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. This Alexander who rejected the faith and, and Paul said that he delivered him over to Satan. I think he was under discipline from the church. So Alexander did Paul great harm, maybe even having a hand in having Paul put in prison. But Paul warns Timothy about him, not merely because of the personal harm, but because, quote, he strongly opposed our message. Do you see that? For Paul, Alexander's great sin was standing against the very word that was so precious to Paul. If Alexander was a threat to Paul's gospel, he would be a threat to Timothy's gospel. So Paul's warning him because they preach the same gospel. Again, Paul's finishing well in the word, even in his remarks about Alexander. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You can't help but hear, in what Paul is saying here, an echo of the way Jesus spoke when he was dying. When Jesus was betrayed by friends. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here Paul is praying for those who deserted him, who left him high and dry at his most desperate hour, and he's saying, don't, don't, don't hold it against them. Verse 17. 
But look what he says. And this really explains why he's able to pray this way. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, which means from the peril of death. Many times he was rescued. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul trusted in God's word and that he trusted that God was faithful. And he was faithful to God's word, even to his own hurt. Why? Because he was entrusting all judgment to God. That's what that text means. And he knew that in the end, God would set it all straight. He says in verse 19, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. He really wants Timothy to come. Eubula sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is, this is what you would expect to see at the end of a letter. Paul sending greetings on behalf of those that are with him. But he's asking Timothy, please come to me. Come before winter. And these last greetings are likely the last recorded words of Paul. And what do we see in Paul's life? He's finishing well in perseverance. He's finishing well in fellowship. And he's finishing well in the word. And that's the model for all of us. That at the very end when the chips are down and when we don't feel like it anymore, that we're to persevere through. Even if it costs us our life. You know, at the beginning of, of World War II, Hitler had completely overrun all of almost all of Europe one by one country after country fell under Hitler's blitzkrieg which was which meant the lightning war and in 1940 by 1940 he had finally gotten the the the, the coveted continental prize he had taken France the British army was there fighting alongside the French but they got whipped they were pushed all the way back to the beaches of Dunkirk in the north of France. And so when they got there at the beaches of Dunkirk, the British army was in front of them and behind them was the English Channel, the sea. And these British soldiers and their French allies were the last line of defense between England and Hitler. And they were absolutely spent. Over 300,000 British Tommies and Frenchmen were trapped on that beach. And they'd fought the Germans off for as long as they could all the Germans had to do at that point was to descend on that beach, start shelling that beach, and they would have annihilated all of the Allied armies. That was it on that beach. And there would have been nothing between Hitler and Great Britain except for the English Channel. That's where they were in 1940, and they were just sitting there on that beach. What happened next, many of you know this story, but what happened next is the stuff of, of, of legend some say it was nothing short of a miracle. And one of the great mysteries of history, Hitler delayed for three days. The army stood down for three days, the German army. In his biography of Winston Churchill, William Manchester narrates what happened at this final scene. I want to read this to you. 
He said the French had collapsed, the Dutch had been overwhelmed, the Belgians had surrendered, the British army trapped, fought free, fell back toward the Channel ports, converging on a fishing town whose name was then spelled Dunkirk. Behind them lay the sea. It was England's greatest crisis since the Norman Conquest, vaster than those precipitated by Philip II's Spanish Armada, Louis XIV's triumphant armies, or Napoleon's invasion barges massed at Boulogne. This time, Britain stood alone. If the Germans crossed the channel and established uncontested beachheads, all would be lost. Now the 220,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope, seemed doomed. On the Flanders beaches, they stood around in angular existential attitudes, like dim, purgatorial souls awaiting disposition. There appeared to be no way to bring more than a handful of them home. The Royal Navy's vessels were inadequate. King George VI had been told that they would be lucky to save 17,000. The House of Commons was warned to prepare for very hard and heavy tidings. Then, from the streams and estuaries of Kent and Dover, a strange fleet appeared. Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure crafts, smacks and coasters, the island ferry Gracie Fields, Tom Sopwith's America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, even the London Fire Brigade's fire float Massey Shaw, all of them manned by civilian volunteers. English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted, bleeding sons. And when it was all said and done, this ragtag armada of civilians crossing the, the English Channel in leisure crafts and fishing boats, they evacuated 338,226 soldiers. They got every one of them off that beach. And it was one of the most impressive escapes in history. It enabled the Allies to fight another day. And when they came back to the beaches of Normandy, they did fight. But in the, in the years after the war, many Englishmen look back to the year 1940 as the darkest year of their lives. Winston Churchill, however, would say that it was his best year. Why? Because they did not give up. They fought to the end and they were rescued. Vince Lombardi once said, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear is that moment when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. This is the picture of perseverance that the Bible draws for us. This is the way that you want to finish. You want to fight the good fight to the very end, having run your race to the finish. And even if you are pinned on that beach with nothing else to fire except rocks to throw, then you stand. Except our story is going to finish not like a little mouse paddling in the water, drowning in the sea. It's going to finish like Dunkirk. Because when you've got your 
little pea shooter aimed at the German army and they're coming down on you, your father is going to show up. And at the end, even if you lay it all down, he is going to raise you up. And there is nothing that you lose at the end that you will not get back and then some when your father comes for you. So you persevere to see his face in that day. And it will be worth it. Father, I do pray that you would help us. Help us to see that through the death and burial of our King Jesus and his resurrection, we are looking forward to a city that is to come, a city not made with hands, whose founder is God. Lord, help us to love Christ so much that we would run to him no matter what. I pray for weak hands in this room. Some in here who are feeling the temptation to give up, to pursue some evil, to pursue some good in an idolatrous way. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them right now. Let them see the glory before them and let them not shrink back. Father, every one of us needs this. We need to persevere. We know the peril is ahead, but we want to make it through to the glory on the other side. Father, bring us through. And we're going to trust you to do this in us because we can't do it in ourselves. And we pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.